keep your Bibles open right there to Second Samuel, chapter seven. <clears throat> the title of the message this morning is "Who Am I?" This is a very, very important message because our fallen nature somehow thinks that we deserve for God to save us. Our nature is so dead in sin that we think we deserve God's mercy and grace. That we deserve God to offer us His mercy and grace. Somehow, I say somehow, but the reason we think this is because our mind is dead in sin. We think that we are so worthy. I mean, we think we're something else. So worthy that God should sacrifice His Son so that he could offer salvation to us, so that we could decide whether we'll accept him or reject him. Now, the only way anybody could think such thing is they have a dead spiritual mind. And if God ever shows us how low we are and how high and lifted up he is, we'll say the same thing that David says in our text, verse 18. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and said, Who am I? Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? Who am I that the Almighty God would bless somebody like me? Who am I? If the Holy Spirit is ever pleased to reveal Christ to us, we will quit saying, I deserve a chance. We'll quit saying, I deserve a chance to be redeemed. By the blood of Christ. I'll be saying. Who am I? Who am I? That God Almighty. Would sacrifice his son. In pain. In humiliation. Who am I that God would sacrifice his son. To pay the redemption price. For my sin. Who am I? Aaron that's too good to be true. Unless God said in his word. It's too good to be true. Now that's the way David felt. And I want us to see this morning. How what David said. As he sat before the Lord. Applies to you and me today. Number one is this. Who am I? That God would make such a promise of grace. To such a great sinner like me. When David comes before the Lord, the way this is written seems to indicate David came and sat before the Lord and he sat in silence for a good while. He was just speechless in awe. In awe at who God is. In awe that somebody like him could come into the presence of God. He sat there speechless at the greatness of God's mercy and the greatness of his promise to David. And when David finally does speak, he's giving thanks. Who am I? Who am I to receive such precious promises from God? If you look up at verse 12, here's the promise that he's talking about. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I'll establish his kingdom. 
and he shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I'll be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I'll chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away before thee, in thine house, and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Now, obviously, the Lord is making a promise to David here about, about Solomon, that he'll raise up out of David's own bowels to, to sit on David's throne and I'll establish his kingdom. That, that part of the promise, the Lord is speaking about Solomon. But the Lord's also making a much greater, much more precious promise than, than Solomon to David. He's making a promise of Christ the Savior, the Messiah coming through David's loins, coming out of David's bowels. It's his throne and his kingdom that will be established forever. He's not talking about Solomon, is he? Solomon's kingdom's long gone. He's talking here about Christ the Savior, the King of Kings, who's coming through the loins of David. And God will establish his kingdom forever. And David knew precisely what the Lord was talking about. In verse 19, David says, And yet this was a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now, if you look over in Acts chapter 2, I'll show you this. David saw that the Lord was speaking about Solomon, but he was he was able to see past Solomon and see the Lord Jesus Christ, that God was making a promise to him of Christ the Savior coming through his loins and that his kingdom would be established forever. Acts 2, verse 29. <clears throat> this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he said, Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he should raise up Christ to sit on his throne. David knew that. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. Neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstools. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. David knew that Christ was coming through his seed according to the flesh and it was Christ who was going to sit on the throne forever. David never held any illusion. Solomon was going to sit on the throne forever. He knew Solomon would die the same way all flesh dies. David looked past Solomon and he saw Christ. And that's what made David in such awe. And wonder that God is sending a Savior. He's sending a Redeemer. That's miracle enough, isn't it? But David's in awe. He's coming through my loins. He's coming and he's be related to me. See, the promise that, that God made to David is that God's covenant of grace. It's not exactly the promise to David. It's, he's telling David what God's promise in the covenant of grace is. 
God's covenant of grace, it's a promise. It's a promise between the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's covenant of grace is conceived, is executed by God for the glory of God. For the glory of God. It's not so that God can necessarily do something for men. Although he does, but the goal of it is not to do something for men. The goal of God's covenant of grace, the purpose of God's covenant of grace, is that God be glorified. Now, this is the promise. God's going to glorify himself by showing mercy to sinners. And God's going to show mercy to sinners and not give them what they deserve by giving Christ the Savior what they deserve as their substitute. Can you think of anything more glorious than that? That God is going to get glory to himself by saving sinners, by slaughtering his son in order to do it in justice. That's the promise. See, sinners are saved for God's glory. The reason God saves sinners is so that Christ will be glorified. That's the reason God saves sinners. The covenant of grace, it's all about God. It's all about the glory of God. And that covenant concerns men. See, the promise is not necessarily made to men. The promise is made between the Godhead. And that covenant concerns men. And this is what filled David with awe and wonder. Who am I that you would include me in your covenant of grace? Who am I that you would show mercy to me because you're going to sacrifice your son in order to do it? Who am I that you would choose to save such a vile sinner as I am? Who am I? A sinner, that's who. David, that's who you are. You're a sinner. God saves sinners. See, his purpose in the covenant of grace is to save sinners. To save sinners who cannot save themselves, who can't help themselves, who can't make themselves more savable, and who can't keep themselves after God does save them. God saves sinners who have no other hope. Now that's a wonder, isn't it? That's a wonder of God's grace. It's easy to see how God gets the glory when he saves just helpless dead sinners like that. And the result of God's grace, the result of his covenant of grace is that his elect are completely forgiven of all their sin. You know why they're forgiven? There's nothing left to charge them with. Their sin is gone. Under the blood of Christ, he washed his people white as snow. Now, there's still consequences for our sin. That's what the Lord says here about, you know, well, you know, I'll be his father and he should be my son. If he commit iniquity, I'll chasten him. There's consequences for our sin. I mean, we just can't think, well, I'll just do whatever I want, you know, and there'll be no repercussions for it because God's forgiven me. God's grace is greater than all my sin. Well, if Christ died for you, God's not going to cast you off. But there are going to be consequences for our sin. That's what he's saying there. But God will never, ever cast out his people if Christ died for them. That's God's covenant of grace. And I can show you a perfect example of that. You look over a few pages in 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is what David believed that day as he sat before the Lord. In a little while, David's going to live it. 
he's going to live it. After his sin with Bathsheba, and he had her committed adultery with Bathsheba, he had her husband killed, and oh my, what a what a what a situation. And Nathan finally comes to David and says, You're the man. David, you're the man. In verse twelve or verse thirteen of Second Samuel chapter twelve, David said unto Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan didn't tell David, well, now, David, it's all right. You know, you didn't mean it, and you, you don't do it again. And Nathan didn't say that. He said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. David, you've sinned, and you deserve to die, but you know why you're not going to die? God's put away your sin. God's put away your sin by the sacrifice of Christ. God putting away David's sin by punishing his son in David's place. That's mercy. That's mercy. And if we ever see ourselves in David's shoes, and we all are, don't make no mistake, we all are in David's shoes. If we ever see ourselves in David's shoes, we'll say the same thing David said. Who am I that you show such mercy to me? You know, this is just a theme of David's all through his life and all through his writings. He's just amazed that God would be merciful and gracious to him. He said in Psalm 32, verse 2, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. That man's blessed, blessed. Have you committed iniquity? Of course you have. That's all we do. Of course, everything we've done is, of course you've committed iniquity. Why doesn't God charge you with it? Why didn't he impute it to you and charge it to you? You know why? He imputed it to his son at Calvary and put him to death for him. That's why David said, blessed is the man. He just can't get over the blessing of God that God would not impute his sin to him because he imputed it to Christ. In Psalm 130 verse 3, David said, if thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Not me. You think you'll stand? Not me. David said, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. You know why God forgives the sin of his people by punishing his son for it? For God's glory. So that we'll fear God. So that we'll reverence and worship him. David just couldn't get over it. God forgives my sin by punishing his son in my place? Why me? Why would I be such a blessed man? Who am I that God would promise to save me and forgive my sin by the sacrifice of himself? Who am I? Nobody but a sinner. Because that's who God saves. Right, number two. Who am I that God would elect me? Look at verse eight back in our text. Now therefore so shalt thou say unto thy servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat, and for following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. God chose David to be king in Israel. Israel chose Saul. By their way, by their methods, by their procedure, they thought Saul. You know, this, this, this is logical to us. We chose Saul. It was a disaster, wasn't it? God chose David to be king of Israel. 
Now, election is God choosing. That's what it is. God choosing who he'll save. Election is God making the difference. The only difference between the saved and the lost is God's electing love. The only difference. God chooses to save some, and he passes by others. And that's God's crown rights to do. And David never got over this fact. God chose me when I deserved to be passed by. Everybody else would have said God should pass me by. Yet God chose me. He said in Psalm 65 verse 4, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee. That man's blessed because he doesn't deserve to be chosen. He doesn't deserve to be drawn to Christ. That man's blessed. Now who am I? Who am I? That I'd be blessed like that. And you know God chose David. In the same way. That he chooses all of his people. God always chooses. The least likely. Always. One day. The prophet Samuel. Showed up in, in Bethlehem. The town where Jesse lived. And everybody was kind of afraid. That Samuel showed up. You know, they thought, well, Samuel coming to judge us. Well, I mean, this is Samuel. Why is he here? And Samuel goes to Jesse's house. Knocks on the door. Jesse opens the door. And there's Samuel. Samuel's here. You better hurry and clean up the living room. Samuel's here. And Samuel comes in and says, Jesse, I'm here to anoint one of your sons as the king of Israel. Jesse, one of my sons? Samuel says, one of your sons. He said, let's bring him out here. We'll have a sacrifice. I'm going I'm to sanctify them with a sacrifice. And we're going we're to see who God, God's king is. Well, Jesse gathered his, his sons. And he prayed at them all before Samuel. All of them except David. Because just, you know what everybody knew? Everybody knew this. The next king of Israel is not David. I mean, it could be any of these other boys, but I promise you this, it's not David. Jesse didn't even bother calling and getting David to come in from watching those sheep out there because he knew that's pointless. It's one of these other boys. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is where that, that story happens. Well, Jesse had his way, didn't he? Bringing all those older sons to him. But God chose. God elected his king. He rejected all those other boys. Everybody else that was the obvious choice, God rejected. And he chose the least likely, the least worthy to be king. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. And it came to pass when they were come, these sons of Jesse, they looked on Eliah, he's the firstborn, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I've refused him. See, that's how they chose Samuel, or that's how they chose Saul, what? The height of his stature, the look of his outward countenance. I mean, this guy must have been something else. That's why they chose him. God said, Now don't look on the height of his stature, for I've refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. 
And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. Now you know Samuel was confused at this point. The Lord told him, You're going to anoint one of Jesse's sons, king of Israel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, Jesse said, Well, there remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and with all of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. Look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. This is he. <laughs> See, that was God's choice, wasn't it? That was the least likely. This young boy, he was just out there keeping, as his brother David said later, those few sheep. That's how God chose the king, the king of Israel. By choosing the most unlikely candidate. Now if you're a believer, if you know Christ, if you trust Christ, you already know what I'm going to say next. You're going to say that's how God chose me. God always chooses the most unlikely. God always chooses the most undeserving. So we see that salvation is of the Lord. The blessing is of the Lord. We know this. If you're a believer, you know this. I don't deserve the least of God's mercy. Yet wonder of wonders. He's poured out upon me all the riches of his mercy. Who am I? Who am I? You're unworthy. That's who you are. And it's our unworthiness. Now, if you think you're worthy... I got nothing for you. But if you're unworthy, I got good news. It's our unworthiness that makes us qualified to be an object of God's mercy and grace. God saves the unworthy. Everyone who's unworthy, God saves so that he'll get all the glory in saving. All right, number three. Who am I that God would make me king Look at the, the end of, of verse 8. He said, um, back in our text, back in our Second Samuel, chapter 7. At the end of verse 8, he says, I took you from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I was with thee, whithersoever thou wentest. And I've cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight. And I've made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. David, I, I chose you. I picked you up out of the, out of watching the, just those few sheep and I made you king and I made you a powerful one, a powerful king. I've enriched you. I've cut off all your enemies. I've given you peace round about. And David knows what the Lord's saying here. He says, Lord, you know me. He says in, in verse 20, what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord, thou knowest thy servant. Lord, you know me. You know, you've always known me. You know everything about me. You know me better than I know myself. And you still chose me to be king over Israel. I mean, this is just always a shocking thing to David that God would choose him to be king of Israel. The reason for it, the reason for God's choice can't be because of anything found in David. I mean, most of the time, David was a pretty weak man, wasn't he? 
I mean, David made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. Yet God made him this great and powerful king in the earth. Well, the only reason for that is, has to be the word of God. Has to be the promise of God. It has to be the purpose of God. It has to be the goodness of God because it can't be the goodness of David. It can't. can't be. God made David king. If you look over 1 Peter chapter 2, God made David king, king of Israel, king on the earth. And you know, God's done something better than that for every believer. 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 9. But you, you're a chosen generation. God's chosen you. You're a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar purchased people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every believer is a royal priesthood. That could never be said of David. He was king, but not priest. He was royal, but he was not part of the priesthood. But every believer is something better than what David was, a royal priesthood. Now, those three all-important offices in Israel of old, prophet, priest, and king, nobody was ever priest and king. You could be the priest and the prophet. You could be the king and the prophet, like David was, but nobody was ever king and priest. John tells us, but, that, but every believer has been made a king and a, pri- a royal priesthood. John tells us that in the book of Revelation that the song of the redeemed in Israel or in heaven is God has made us unto our God kings and priests. Something that no man in the Old Testament ever was. God would never allow that. That was reserved exclusively for Christ. King Uzziah, he was a great king. I mean, Isaiah was so impressed with King Uzziah I read, he wrote down everything that King Uzziah did. He was just, he was in awe of this man. And the Lord struck him with leprosy and killed him. You know why? He went in to offer incense. He was the king trying to do the job of the priest and offer incense before the Lord. And God killed him for it. There could, you could not be the king and the priest. That's exclusively the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our king priest, the the king priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's not just an Old Testament story about something that Uzziah did. God will damn you and me too if we try to be our own king and priest. If I try to be my own king and say, I'm going to be the one to decide whether or not I'll accept or reject Jesus. Tell you what, I'll be damned. Because I'll never, I'll never bow to Christ. I'll never believe Christ unless God gives me the, he's, he's got to be the king. He's got to override my will and give me a new will. He's the one that's got to give me faith in Christ. I can't be my own king and I sure can't be my own priest. If I try to offer my own sacrifice to God, think that'll make God happy with me, I'll surely be damned. But if my king and my priest is Christ, I'll have eternal life. And Peter, though, says every believer is made a king and a priest, a royal priesthood. 
Now, what does that mean? It means that in Christ, every believer has the right to come into the very presence of God anytime you want. In the Old Testament, under the Old Testament law, only the priest could come into the presence of God. The high priest with special outfit on once a year, not without blood. He could only come in there on the day of atonement and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat and get out. If you trust Christ, you can come into the very presence of God any time you want. He says come. Come before His throne of, of grace any time you need mercy. Come. You'll be accepted. You'll be heard. Who am I? Who am I? That I would be allowed to come into the presence of the thrice holy God anytime I had need. A nobody. That's who. You're nobody. But in Christ you're accepted. Are you a nobody? Come to God. Come to God in Christ. Then here's the fourth thing. Who am I? That God would join me to Christ. Now back in our text, 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. It came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in the house of cedar, and the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. The ark of God still dwelt in that tabernacle made with curtains. And Nathan said unto the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. Now Nathan thought, surely the Lord will bless this. It's time now to, to build the tabernacle. David wanted to build a house. He wanted to build a house for God. He, he wanted something more permanent you know, than, than that tabernacle from, from the wilderness. But the Lord sent word to Nathan, tell David, you can't build me a house. You can't build me a house. Now get a hold of something here. He tells David, I'll build you a house. I'll build you a house. Look at verse 11. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee, he'll make thee a house. Now notice he doesn't say there, I'll make a house for you. He says, David, I'm going to make you the house. David, I'm going to build you the house. I'm going to make you a spiritual house. And that house is the family of God. It's the body of Christ. That house over which Christ, the, the, the writer of the Hebrews says, over which Christ is faithful, over that house. The house of God is not a building. It's people. The church of God is, is, not, is not a building. It's not an organization. It's people. God's telling David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make you a living stone in the house of God, in the body of Christ. Now I'll show you that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? 
and you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. God says to his people, you're the temple of God, because I dwell in you. Now David wanted to build a house for the Lord. Instead, the Lord makes David the temple, the tabernacle of God, just like he does for every believer by dwelling in the hearts of his people. David wanted to build God a house, and God did something far better, didn't he? We need to always remember this. He is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think. Oh, how much better is it to be made the temple of the living God that God dwells in you? Now, who am I? Who am I that Almighty God would say, I'm going to dwell in you? An object of God's grace. That's it. An object of God's grace. God tells David, I'm going to, I'm going to build you a house. And I tell you how I'm going to build you, David. I'm going to build you on Christ. Not only am I going to dwell in you, I'm going to build you on Christ. One more passage. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to build you on Christ so that you'll never be moved. Ephesians 2 verse 19. Now, therefore, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Who am I? To be built on Christ the chief cornerstone. Who am I to be like David. Made part of this holy temple. In the Lord that's all fitly framed together. Every every piece is put exactly where it belongs. Who am I? That God would make me part of that living house. Who am I that God would make me a living stone. In his temple. Who am I? A dead sinner. That's who. Are you a dead sinner? I mean, you've got no life, you've got no understanding, you've got no, are you a dead sinner? If you are, God's going to give you life by joining you to Christ. That's who he makes part of his, the, a living stone. You got to be a dead stone first, and God's going to give you life by Christ dwelling in you. Who am I? Who am I? All right, let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, how can we begin to thank you for your mercy and grace to such dead dog sinners as we are? How can we thank you for making us part of your body, the body of Christ? How can we thank you for choosing to have mercy and grace upon us? How can we thank you for calling us to Christ, giving us the gift of faith in Christ? How can we thank you for keeping us by your mercy and your grace, and your eternal love for your people. Father, how how can we thank you? Who are we? Who is this people that you'd be so merciful and gracious to us? 
Father, how we thank you. And Father, I pray that you take your word as it's been preached and that you'd apply it to each heart here to show us our nothingness and to show us that Christ is everything. Cause us to run to him, to rely upon him, to rest in him. Father, it's in his name, for his glory, in his sake we pray. Amen. All right. Chris, come lead us in a closing hymn if you will.